0: Hi, everyone. Before we start this podcast, take a moment to look around you. Where are you now? Are you at home? Are you in a car? Are you looking outside through a window where you can see a built environment with perhaps a few trees? Nature is often far away from our daily lives. And that's literally unnatural because as a species, we need our connection to nature. And I believe that Each of us feels that when we go for a walk in a forest or when we see flowers or when we just lay on a beach and watch the seagulls flying high above us while we listen to the waves rolling in. Biophilia is the word that describes the love of life, the love of living things like plants and animals. And we feel better when our living or working environment follows the principles of Biophilic design. So look around you again. Is there a plant in your office or maybe a photo of a walk in nature that you enjoyed? Well, that's a start. And today we are joined in this podcast by a specialist in biophilic design. Vanessa Champion is the editor of the Journal of Biophilic Design. Ness, welcome in the podcast.
1: Many thanks, Alex. A really
0: pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Can you tell us uh, what? the room that you are in now looks like is it really biophilically designed is that a room with all kinds of pots and plants around you how should we imagine that <laughs> uh, well yeah bio-
1: biophilic design is, is kind of more than just plants most people think that biophilic design is about plants and yes it is we need to bring nature in obviously the, the, as you mentioned biophilia means the love of life love of living things it was first coined by eric from um and then it was picked up by um e o wilson and um then it was applied by Edward Kellett. so people who are listening can go and go and google those um but my my room here um I have lots of natural wood I'm working on a natural wood table, massive pine thing <laughs> which um has seen lots and lots of life um I've got lots of wood things, natural materials around me um which is all good for our brain. There's natural light, although you're at 11 o'clock where you are, Alex. It's getting to, wait, it's just past four now here in the UK. So it's starting to get a little bit dark. Um, but I do have plants here. Um, yes, yeah, probably one one too many plants. Lots of natural materials in the furniture, soft furnishings. So that's all about textures as well. Um, yeah, so, uh, yes, yeah, so as I said, you know, biophilic design is more than just plants. It's also about reducing VOCs in your life uh, as well. So um, yeah, and sort of soundscaping as well. So actually I was listening, talking to somebody the other day, and they were saying that one of the best actually it was um, it was Paige, actually Paige Hodgman from uh, Ecophon and she was saying one of the best things for for actually uh, improving acoustics in a space is is opening a window because it actually diffuses sound. So where we need better sound quality for our you know for our brains for uh, creativity. Um, actually just open a window. So if you're finding yourself in a cacophonous environment or if you're in an office or if you're just in your house and lots of reflective surfaces, then, uh, then open a window. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, just, yeah. just sort of kind of ready to circle back on the sort of biophilic design and what it is. It's, um, it's about bringing in representations of nature, whether they're real or whether they're, um, patterns of nature, simulated, um, elements of nature as well. So, um, as you say, you know, sort of trees and plants and things. And this is not, not just, not just in, in interiors, um, but this is also in the built environment as well, and in architecture and, and city planning, And um, something that I'm really quite, um, quite passionate about that we get more trees in our environment, um, as well. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I remember in, in, in Manhattan, they are uh, literally counting each and every tree. And, and sometimes you see a publication about it, how many trees there are in Manhattan. Outside of uh, Central Park, and and they cherish each each uh, tree there, and uh, and it 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 helps, I think. Let's say uh, uh, Park Avenue is uh, just a bit nicer than than let's say Fifth Avenue or, or Seventh Avenue, uh, just because there's this tiny little bit of park in the middle. It's maybe a meter wide or two meters, not more than that, but it it gives a bit of gives a bit of green. Um, and what you yeah. say about the windows. By the way, our acoustics are not very good in this broadcast. For those that are listening, we try to improve it. Um, Ness even opened a window, but we're still <laughs> we're, we're still not uh, at, at the quality of sound that we would like to have. But I remember also in uh, when the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where I worked for many years in the Netherlands, when this was designed, uh, there were no windows that could be opened at all, which was considered really modern in the early 1980s, that, wow, you had a building where you couldn't open any window. That must be been a great building. And then the people working in the ministry, they started a campaign that they could have windows that could be opened as as a kind of compromise. We got a tiny little window that, mm-hmm. that you could open. I, I, I suppose about the size of the window that you get in, in, in a prison, you, you <laughs> wouldn't be able to climb out. And um but people were asking for it because probably they want to feel that uh, that connection uh, to nature. Well,
1: it, so, yeah, <clears throat> it is. I think actually, yeah. I mean if, if the whole point about biophilic design is that I don't know if the sound is better now by the way, um, but that one of the whole things um about biophilic design is about um well, you basically, we, we've not changed much since our lives on the plains, you know, since we were like Neanderthals, since we were our physiognomy is, is very, very much similar. I are mean, not just Neanderthals, but obviously when we're Homo sapiens. Um, but if you think about it, you know, we, we were, we were born, um, to live in nature. We were born to operate in nature. Um, and just to sort of like circle back on the sound thing. And actually, if you think about it in nature, there's, it's never silent. There's always some kind of noise. So it's really good to also have some, you know, natural sounds in your home as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, but to talk also about the trees. Um, I was talking to, um, obviously because I'm, because I'm the editor of the journal by design. I always end up in talking to all these other experts. Um, but, um, they were saying that, uh, we need to have be, be live within a hundred meters of, of trees. Um, because that actually helps our, our mental being It helps, uh, reduce, um, uh, um, aggression as well. Um, in, in cities, particularly in inner cities. And, um, so it's, it's really important that we plant more trees rather than cutting them down. Um, Hmm. uh, it it seems like people are quite keen on doing that at the moment, isn't it? cutting trees down without, um, actually planting new ones or whatever. So.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and it's, it's, I remember also reading research on, um well first of all that more trees in the city is better for many reasons one of them is climate change because it Mm. cools the city down and then there was research uh, done in in the united states that uh, there was a lot of social and ethnic profiling in uh, which neighborhoods actually got Mm. the trees and uh, it it uh, turned out that neighborhoods where you have more people of color were uh, nearly always, the neighborhoods with uh, the least uh, mm-hmm. amount of trees and therefore mm-hmm. suffering more from well all the disadvantages of not having trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. One extreme is that it gets just so much hotter in the summer mm-hmm. um, when you when you don't have trees. So it's it's an important element in in designing uh, cities. But but how do you how do you become a biophilic designer? Is there like a study that you can follow or how does one become a biophilic designer? Because it's not that I, that I meet many of them. I see the results of their work, but it's not that when I bump into people that say, well, I'm, I'm a biophilic designer.
1: There are there are different courses, um, I and mean, obviously biophilic design also um, is part of like sustainable building practices and sustainable architecture. I mean, by its very nature, because you tend to use natural materials um, and sort of obviously encourage biodiversity in in any sort of pro- um, planting or landscaping that you're doing. Um, but um, people like Oliver Heath. Um, and listeners might know Oliver Heath. He is kind of like Mister Biophilic Design um, in, in 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 the on Telly and, and stuff, and is a, is a very very good speaker on uh on biophilic design. But he's got a course, for instance, so people can learn interior design uh, with biophilic design with him. Um, Maureen Kalamir is doing one. Um, I'm actually going to be doing one with um, Dr. Sally Augustine, who's an environmental psychologist in America. Um, again, people are interested in, in her, she she's flip her up um, also the space toxers Um but um yeah this it's kind of a, and also I think um I think some people will naturally design more naturally, if you know what I mean. They will they will be drawn more to natural materials and, 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 and wood and, and and natural light and um like i say soundscaping and, and textures and better carpeting and, and, and sort of not using um, plastic materials and, and things. So yeah. I think just by by their their sort of design preferences, they'll be moving more that way. So there are courses out there, um, but you have to look for them. Mm. <laughs> so,
0: and is, yeah. is there is there a trend? Because if I think of, let's say, the 1960s, a mm. modern house was full of plastic. The chairs were made of plastic. The tables yeah. were made of plastic because there was like... That was really modern. That was the future. And, and if you had a wooden table, you had to throw it out because there was something ancient <laughs> of the Middle Ages. And Now, I can imagine, I'm not sure if that's true, uh, but now that more and more people are really getting worried about our environment, they're worried about climate change, about the, the loss of nature... Uh, the the pollution of plastic plastic gets a different kind of kind of image Uh, it is no longer the future but it's it's a symbol of 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 everything that is bad um would that do you see a trend there are people getting more interested in in biophilic design
1: absolutely absolutely um i mean when i set up I said I had a, another company. First of all, where I was selling my own prints, um, sort of for nature, and taking them into healthcare because I'd heard about biophilic design. And when I first googled it, there was like two or three things came up, and it was like the same old, same old. And 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 now when you Google biophilic design, there's there's shed loads of information. It's on CNN. It's on you know on on sort of all kind of um, you know. Uh, fashion magazines even um are talking about it home and design magazines it is becoming a more recognized trend thankfully actually because it's better for our whole mental and physical well-being um and i think as well with like trends like sustainable fashion and obviously with climate change with cop 26 all these things everybody it seems like there's a huge movement um to push our mindsets forward to more to more sustainable living and um, yeah, and as you say, I, I, it has actually um, started to manifest itself in design, in architecture, in town planning, in city planning, thankfully. Um, things like green roofs as well. You know, you've got um, living walls, uh, which are great um, for reducing um, pollution, for instance. I mean, you can put that in a city, which is fantastic. You know, you've got you know, a busy road. You can put a green wall up and it'll absorb some of the pollution. I mean, and that doesn't have to cost the earth. I interviewed a guy called Daniel Bell and he's got, he has got an amazing system, it's so brilliant, he's done it on Piccadilly Circus and it's, um, it's basically uh, a felt, a recycled material um, uh, system where he stapled it, if you, if you, <laughs> you have to look at it on the video thing because he's literally he gets the staple gun and he's stapled around this plant. Um, there's no uh, earth, there's no compost in there, so it's completely sustainable. It's held on a frame on the side of a building, and of course it reduces all the pollution, um, a lot of the yeah. pollution in, uh, in Piccadilly. So, so yeah, there's, there's more and more trends. It's not just aesthetically beautiful, I mean, which obviously people are wanting to do, um, but I think with people being more conscious of sustainability and biodiversity issues and climate change and wanting to do something different, I think it's also a physical sort of design manifestation within their space. It's almost, I think as well with brands as well and corporates, you know, if they've got plants in the office, it's, it's like recognition to the staff to say, look, we care, we are doing something, um, as well as it being, a, you know, a positive thing for the mindset of the, of, the, of the workforce because, you know, it improves creativity, it improves productivity, it reduces... Um, you know, our blood pressure. I mean, there's so many benefits of having, um, plants and biophilic design in, in a workspace. So, um, yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening right now, which is making biophilic design be a, a really popular, um, solution, I think. And I, and I, and I, and I'm not, I'm not, um, shy at coming forward and saying, actually, one of the reasons I've set the biophilic design podcast, uh, you know, my, my, my journal up is, is saying so that, yeah, people people will start incorporating it in their design practices, and then, you know, once you're surrounded by it, by by default, you're going to have to care for it. You put a there was a study I remember reading when I first started this. You put a pot plant. I'm going to bring a pot plant up because we're on video as well. So I just you you take a pot plant, um, and you put it on somebody's desk, and then you say, right, there you go, and then you tell them to move they will take a pot plant with them <laughs> because it's a living thing. They care for it. And it's also, yeah. if you're feeling a bit down in the dumps and you're not feeling like, you know, anything you take, you have a pot plant to care for, it's not like having a cat or a dog or something, but it's, you actually, then it encourages, it's proven that it encourages self care as well. So there's so many, there's so many, I could go on, I could go on, Alex. There's yeah. so many different aspects of, um, of having plants and biofilms in your home and um,
0: particularly in healthcare. I, I mean, healthcare is where I really I, I, I wonder if um, once we get out of the pandemic, how does it will mm. change in offices? Because before the pandemic, the trend was, and now I'm, I'm talking very much about, uh, about the Netherlands, but I know that this happened worldwide, was to get this hot desk uh, system. So you come in the office in the morning, you just pick a desk uh, and and you start working there. And that was started by all kinds of .dot .com companies already, whatever, 15, 20 years ago. And then it was very modern. And now all kinds of other offices, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where I was still working in the Netherlands in those days, they said, ah, we're going to do that as well, because then we need less office space and it's cheaper, et cetera. And my experience is that people hated it because people, first of all, like to have their own space, but also you know, your little plant on the office or the, 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 the photo that you had on your desk of your latest, whatever, trekking holiday in the mountains or something, all of that was gone for this, this kind of anonymous space uh, that, that that you you couldn't control and that felt very, very alienated in, in many ways. And then just when this became the big trend, then radically, unexpectedly, we got the pandemic and mm-hmm. it meant that we all had to be home and that we also discovered that you could work from home where you have your cat and your dog and your plant and your pictures and your your own biophilic space where you can work from. And a lot of people don't want to go back to this anonymous yeah. empty spaces. And mm-hmm. we're probably left now with enormous amounts of office space all over uh, at, at least in, in, in the Western world, where we don't know what to do with it, while at the same time all these countries still have um, housing problems for their population, which seems to be a, a, a no-brainer, what you should do with those offices. But I can imagine that office space will look differently because employers will probably find themselves in a situation that you you try to lure back your employers into the office but you realize that times have changed and that your mm-hmm. your people are not going back to the office unless you really force them to mm-hmm. so putting a bit of biophilic elements in their surroundings might actually help what, what do you think is that people already written about this is this a, a yeah. new trend maybe
1: <laughs> well there is i mean there's quite a few things there actually um I go to go a lot to workplace trends um we're actually a media partner with them now, but the um it's brilliant if people are interested in office spaces and the future of workplace then it's a good th- good thing to look up is workplace trends um, but people are looking to repurpose space you know what's the future of the office going to be? just like you said you know people are working from home it's easier I mean you can go and work in a pub you can go and find like these little um you know uh, remote working spaces um but um what was, what will the workplace, what will that office, you know, you have to repurpose the office and you also have to design it so that people are going to want to come back. You're not going to like leave it in a horrible, horrific area, know, environment that people are going to go, yeah, now i want to, I want to, I want to stay home today. I don't, I don't want to go in there. Um, but you know, there's, there's obviously also the psychology of it and the, the benefit of actually working in an office for some reasons, for some aspects of it, like for instance, collaboration and creativity and, You know, being able to um, brainstorm ideas, it's really important to get people back together in a space, whether that's in a, in the, in the current office place that they've got, or whether they create something else. Maybe it's an event space, you know, maybe it's like somewhere different. Um, but, um, yeah, there's, you know, like we've been talking about biophilic design being a really important aspect to, yeah, to entice people back to the workplace. Um, yeah, I think the millenniums, millennials, um, and, um, and people who are, who are more fussy, to be honest, and they've they've got. Um, I mean, they've, they've done studies of it, which you know, Alex. Um, but you know, they they are more eco-conscious. They're more environmentally conscious. They want to um, go and work somewhere where they think their employer, um, you know, cares actually cares for the environment and cares for their staff. So there's a lot more uh, human-centric design, which is what biophilic design is about. Um, so, and it's also about providing choice for people, because obviously at, at home we have a choice more or less. I mean, it depends whether we decide to work on an ironing board or in the kitchen <laughs> or in the bedroom or on your, on your lap. Um, but we have a choice, you know, um, and being able to give that in an office is really good as well. So, um, Dr. Nigel, um, Osland, um, who actually is part, is, runs workplace trends with Maggie, um, Procopi. Um, but he's, he's an, again, environmental psychologist and he talks about zoning a lot. I mean there's a lot of other, other psychologists and environment and, and Dr Sally Augustin does as well. Um, but his book, um, Beyond the Workplace Zoo, is a brilliant book because he talks uh, about um, landscaping, the Landschaft Bureau, um, the German um, sort of concept of creating a a landscaped office so we can and landscape doesn't just mean like literally putting <laughs> putting putting grass in there or putting trees and stuff i'm, but actually, I'm
0: thinking teletubbies right now
1: <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to know about your psyche there alex that sounds quite boring <laughs> um but um, but but having actually a landscape office where you can sort of go, you know, you can be in a, like, quiet zone and you can be in an open plan zone. I mean, in, in biophilic design, we talk about there's all these different, like, uh, patterns. There's 14 patterns of biophilic design, which um there's a company called Terrapin, Terrapin Bright Green. Again, listeners, go Google them. There's lots of things I'm mentioning here, but it's, they're really, really great. But they talk about these 14 patterns of biophilic design, and one of them is just prospects and refuge and how important it is for us to have spaces where we can, be all sort of snuggled up in, if you want, and look out. Um, you know, and it's just, again, like you mentioned earlier on, about having views, having a picture of a of a, of a mountainscape near. You, you know, to kind of encourage your brain to to wander off. But um, but yeah, but to go back to the workplace thing, it's really important, I think, for um for offices and, and employees to um to really consider their workforce and, and actually to create an environment that they'd want to be in. I mean, we're not we're not in factory workers anymore. You know, we're not. <laughs> you know, well, some of us are, of course, but um those of us who are working, most of us, if you think about it, particularly in the West, we're on computers and we're in office desks and we've got crappy lighting and on all this sort of stuff, putting proper circadian rhythm lighting in, get, giving them giving people choice, they've also proven that if you have a choice to be able to dim your light or control your light, make it more blue, make it more yellow depending, it's so good for us. I mean and this is all biophilic design. This is all and it's not yeah. rocket it's not rocket yeah. science. It's all it's all nature, you know? It's really, um, yeah, it's, it's it's incredibly important. I think that we uh, that we we do think about what you know a perfect nature day would be like, and then try and bring that into our homes and our, our workplaces. And and Alex, it's really important to have it in healthcare. It's imperative yeah. to have it in healthcare. Um, you know, there's there's Roger Ulrich did a study in the eighties. And people got better um, from hospital quicker because they had views of nature. Um, I mean, it's just its just so important. It's just so important. So important.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I, uh, I remember seeing in a the hospital these huge, uh, um, what do you say, pictures that are yeah. uh, with light behind them of nature that they put in the uh, intensive care rooms. And that was so beautiful that when people were laying in bed, that they could actually look at nature, at whatever, pictures of British Columbia or something. And it it it, uh, it looked amazing. It I, I nearly felt like I would want to be in intensive care here. <laughs> uh, and I can imagine that <laughs> makes you really feel better.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's the reason I, I set the company up. That's the reason I set, by, you know, why I've started researching this biophilic design, because my dad's... My dad had Alzheimer's and vascular dementia and he spent his last days in a, in a place and he was looking at ceiling tiles and I, and the environment around him was okay. I mean it was not very much biophilic design, but it was you know it was quite a nice place, but he was looking at ceiling tiles and I'm thinking this is so sad that he's spending his last days looking at looking at white squares basically and if you think about it with Alzheimer's they've got no frame of reference it's like it must have been incredibly scary, you know. And then my mum at the same time was rushed into hospital. She, I was losing her as well. So she was dying. And I'm thinking, this isn't fun. This is not a fun time in my life. Um, yeah. My cat got run over as well. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was after a month. Um, I can laugh about it now, but it was really traumatic. Um, but I took, because I'd read a little bit about biophilic design, and Alex, as you know, I'm a, I'm a photographer, professional landscape photographer and portraits and stuff. So I took a picture of my my landscape basically, and I, I printed them on aluminium, which is you know waterproof, chemical resistant, so I knew you could clean them. I put them in her uh, isolation unit, and um her delirium came down, uh, her blood pressure came down, she started to communicate, she stopped going round and round in circles, and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I'm witnessing something here that I've kind of read about, I sort of knew about. So that's when I started Googling, I started trying to find out, and I, and, and I said, Alex, for sanity, I set this up. I set up this thing, company called Agenta Wellness, to sell my prints. That was it to try and get it into healthcare. And because I was trying to, as I was researching it, my background in academia, it was like I've got to tell people about this. I can't just keep it to myself. So I started sharing it on the journal. I just created the journal of Fluid design for sanity, um, but also to share the to share the knowledge really. And it's wow. So and I'm, glad, I'm glad I've done it. So, but yeah. <clears throat> that's supposed to be done we need to get it into every nhs
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a fascinating story which you, you you touched upon your your bio which i didn't really really discuss here but that seems to be we could go on for hours because one of the many things you do you are a professional photographer so what what do you focus on is that also nature mainly well it's, i mean i yeah
1: I, actually my first i started selling my landscapes when i was 16 so that was I'm very old now, <laughs> um, but no, anyway, I was kind of long story short. And I, I was an academic and, and stuff, and I started. I went back into photography, and I started doing a bit of photojournalism and writing, um, and interviews and stuff like that. And um, and it was mostly then portraits and documentary stuff. I I've, I did Adele, um, Pavarotti. if anybody remembers Pavarotti? Of course. <laughs> Yeah, and um, oh, this, is, this is a good game. I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the speed of it. Um, and so now I run a I run a media company. It's a small media company, but I've, it's not just me. I've got other people that do bits and bobs for me, and um, photography and filming and that. But um, we basically tell stories, and uh, I, my strap line is media that makes a difference. So if you're a, if you're an artist or an actor or whatever, I help you see yourself in a different light. Um and um yeah, and we'd obviously do it for corporates as well and, and video work. So uh but I yeah, I think I think the power of, of good media to make a difference, to make a change, to influence people, to inspire uh discussion and communication and dissemination of news and information, you know and, and knowledge I think is so important. It really yeah. really um, Do
0: people still trust the media?
1: Oh there's
0: a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um I I think there's a lot of cynicism. Don't
0: you? There's, there's, I, oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, there's, there's. I social media was first a revolution because yeah. basically everybody became a journalist and everybody became a consumer of much more than the newspaper to which you had a subscription, subscription, and that 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 ended up in your mailbox every day. Okay. And suddenly there's this, this enormous amount of 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 media available in all kinds of different forms. It's an overload. And you have to pick and choose. And um, yeah, I, I, personally, I think it's been uh, uh, it's it's been a blessing and a curse. Uh, yeah. Most of all, it, it seems that my, my idea is that you need a bit of training and education to find your way in that jungle, and that a lot of people are are lost and are tricked into believing that they see a diversity of views. Well, actually, they are just being manipulated by clever people that have an agenda to to get them there but that's mm. that's that's the way i view the world i, I personally love social media and, and i love how media has developed in general um, but I'm, I'm i'm very much aware of the risks so so yeah so where are you there on, on media well um
1: like you uh, i thought when twitter for instance came I thought well, this is interesting what is this um but i, I quite enjoyed watching how it was developing in terms of people being able to have a conversation and discussing news items and 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 um, it being a very, um, uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm trying to say, very open so that um, um, the people can get involved and actually communicate and, and contact politicians and MPs and stuff on in a, in a very sort of open and direct platform. But I, I think what's happened is that it's become... Um, a money machine now Um, you know if you think of Facebook originally that was again uh, you know I was quite cynical about that and I still am but that's now become your algorithm if you're a, if you're a business if you're a small business you you can put your stuff on there but you can't no one can see it unless you pay for it it's a paper play Instagram is the same thing um, so you talk about you know how people's consumption of media and do we trust media unfortunately I think the media that we see is weighted from those that pay, and who are those that pay? Well, they're usually sponsored machines or sponsored corporates and um yeah, it's not balanced, and you know we we've had a discussion before, alex um but I think for for us as individuals, so you know our listener, you know all of our listeners, me, you, everybody. To go and find independent journalism like what you're doing, Alex, is really important. You are you're interviewing like I mean Michael Mann and and, and Eric Solheim. I mean they're fantastically interesting and people. Champion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, 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 of course, yes, yes, yes. Uh, um, but it's but it's really important so that you can you you get one to one with these people and you can actually you grill them and you understand, you know, you get the best out of them and, and I think from from a listener's point of view you learn you learn more because it's a more of an intimate conversation and it's, you feel like you're part of it. So I, I think being able to consume uh, education and knowledge and facts on a different level um, on, through independent journalism has to be the way. How you then navigate the independent journalists, I think, it has to be through peers. It has to be through recommendation. People going, do you know what? This guy is really good. You need to listen to this chap's podcast. You need to listen to this person's um, blog. You need to read this thing because they, they, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, and there are so many trolls. I mean, I, with one of my hats on, I'm, I'm, a, I, I still do PR and we work in cybersecurity. Our clients are sort of, you know, cybersecurity, information security, and you, and I think I'm so I'm party to so much of that side of it as well, where, you know, there's robots and trolls and but they're all paid for stuff. You know what I mean? So it's all AI. It's all machine learning. So, um, yeah, I think, again, going back to independent journalism, um, I think is really key. I mean, I can't I don't really want to bad mouth any particular newspapers, but some of them are sponsored by certain capitalist machines and um you know, they have their own agenda, you know, for right or wrong, but they have to sell advertising. So if they have to, by default, they can't be seen to be so anti-fossil fuel because they're not going to get the, you know, the, the, so yeah, yeah. Independent journalism yeah. all day long it has to be.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'd love to hear it as well. Yeah, you live in the country of Brexit. So you've seen your share of, of manipulation <laughs> of media, of course, mm. but, uh, yeah, I believe very much uh, the same way in, in independent journalism, and I really, uh, I find myself that I'm more and more reading newsletters from people that I trust, where I say, "Well, they have like they bring in something new and original without an agenda." Of course, they're the problem is so I experience it myself. How do you how do you get funded? You know, I get I have. Uh, luckily i have some supporters on 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 the newsletter that i have but it's really tough to make a living out of it it will be so much easier just to join a newspaper and work there as a journalist so there's so there's there's a challenge and i hope that this becomes more of a trend that people instead of um, relying on uh, traditional news channels that people pick up more things like uh, like individual newsletters, they're growing fast, especially during the the pandemic. That uh, it has really become a trend now, and uh, well, call in might actually be an interesting development. It's still very small, of course. It started only in September, yeah. uh, so you might call me an early adopter here. Um, but but a call in has quite a bit of future. It it has now this this informal chatting that we can do, but then. Once the live broadcast is over, you publish it as as a podcast, Mm -hmm. and it's free for everyone to to access. And i I haven't seen anything yet on uh, on call in where where what you see in in the really big media the kind of kind of pollution with bots that are trying to 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 influence everything. And on Twitter, I see it constantly. Um, I was yesterday followed by uh, a woman made comments on something that I posted, uh, and that was critical about climate change. And then I looked at her bio, and it said something like PhD in biology and whatever. But the only thing was she had spelled PhD with three capital letters. Yeah. So then I looked at what she was posting, which was all kind of, of, of uh, Trump kind of promotion um, and she wasn't able to spell PhD, but she claimed to be one. Uh, so this is typically the kind of bots uh, that uh, that you're uh, that you're meeting online now. So yes, it's 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 a rapidly developing field. Uh, this this more independent journalism, and I'm 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 a big fan of it. So um, if if people want to get involved in in, in the change in, in engaging on on socials and sharing imagery and and and, and listening and, and educating themselves um where where should they start where would you where would you guide them to if people say well um i i believe that You know, our society should be changing. We should move. We should. There should be a trend of going back into nature. We should be better informed in the kind of issues that we just spoke about. Where would you? What would you advise people to do, apart from putting plants on their desk?
1: (laughs) (laughs) We should do that first while you're thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I think. um, I think talking to people is in real life uh, or like this you know engaging with someone so you know people I mean like for instance you've built up trust through you know your listeners know who you are they know your background they know your credibility and if you recommend a podcast or a a journal or a thing I think you you know from you know from my point of view I'd go oh wow that's that's you must have looked at it and at least you you know you've got an idea that it would be a coaster thing so I would probably follow that um, if I was starting from scratch, I, I think you know if you go to events, you know if you go to a conference, it's always good because you can talk to people in the audience. Um, you can go and speak to a speaker. You know if a speaker's you know giving a presentation, you think you know I really like what they said. Or if you're listening to a YouTube channel and and somebody is being interviewed or whatever, and you think you know that they they talk a lot of lot of sense there. And then you go off and find more, or you read books as well. That's also really good, you know. Um, the traditional media: go and find a book, go to your library, go go to a bookstore, go and wander around Waterstones or an independent books books dealer, and just pick off sh- books from the shelf. And then and then Google the writer and the author. Are they are they got a blog? Do they contribute to a particular journal? Do they do they put their name to something? So you know. You know, it might, it's not 100% fail safe, but it's, it's probably a good, um, credible way of look, finding a finding, uh, sourcing new um, new content. I mean, I've, yeah. I mean, as you said, sort of PhD, my background, obviously academic, I've always gone to the primary source. If I can, you know, I'll always go to the person who's said the thing in the first place. Can I interview you or can I speak to you? Can I find out about you? Can I dig up that? inscription <laughs> you know, can I can we can we go back to that original thing to find out the truth um, yeah. because when you when you do it through hearsay it's, it's just it gets diluted for a start anyway
0: yeah exactly exactly yeah I think I'm looking at the clock and we we could go on for hours I got a few mm. last things to ask you um tell us about the space dot com <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that's kind of, um, I interviewed uh, Dr. Sally Augustin. Uh she's a leading environmental psychologist, when well, I was doing the Journal of Biophilic Design and um, and it was during lockdown and um, and I, obviously I was a media company so I was doing lots of photography and filming and it all dried up <laughs> and it was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm going to be on the street in a box, but it'll be a biophilic box. <laughs> um, and, and I was talking to her and she said, oh, I've got this idea. So we, we went, one thing went back to another and then eventually we set up this, this basically a membership platform for space doctors and you, and you learn about, um, how to design your home to live the life you always wanted to live. And it's all based on science. It's all based on environmental psychology. So. So, for instance, you know, if you if you want to be more so, obviously, Valentine's Day is coming up. So, if you want to be more attractive to the opposite sex, you know, stand against a red wall or wear something red because then we're more attractive to the uh, to the other opposite sex, uh, apparently. Um, and um, <laughs> lots of things. Okay,
0: like that. that's 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 a great advice. But you shouldn't wear something red and stand in front of a red wall because then nobody sees you, right?
1: Well, you just see a floating head. <laughs> you wear a jumpsuit unless you've got legs on it, of course, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay this is something i never knew okay that's that's uh, you learn something every day i also work for photo aids global foundation
1: so yeah that's that's actually mine i um i set that up um i founded that okay. i came back i was working in the slums in, in in mumbai with a charity called born to be beautiful um who were teaching women um in the slums manicures and pedicures and I, initially i was thinking why would you do that uh, but actually, the women don't have any education, and it's, they, it's it's so easy to put on manicure, you know, to nail nail polish, so that they can then swap for, um, for for food, for a little bit of uh, bit of money, and they can swap it for milk um, in the slums. Um, and then gradually they can and progress and and then work in a little salon, you know, in, in sort of different places. But and when i came back i uh, i gave the pictures to a charity uh, and they said oh well thank you and i said well you know i i've been touched by the women so much i had this sort of like uh, a life changing experience working and, and and listening to these women's stories um that i wanted to do something more so i put on an exhibition did the prints um got it all funded somehow it was all, it was literally the kindness of strangers i can't i can't even begin to tell you alex uh, there there's many stories there but um i was very, it was incredibly humbling and um and then people came in to the exhibition going, wow, it's amazing what you've done. And I'm like, no, 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 no it's not about me, not about me. And um, and then I, I just, this sort of, this name came into my head, PhotoAid. I said, it's called PhotoAid Global. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, and then I set up as a foundation and, and now I've got 15 photographers and filmmakers. You know, people who shoot for the National Geographic or The Economist and, I won't mention the Times and Telegraph, but uh, people like that um, and The Guardian and that and, um, and editors who, uh, yeah, who, and they, and they put their time, they just donate their time for ch- to charities and NGOs to tell stories, um, yeah, and put on exhibitions and things. And so we've gone out to Zimbabwe, Uganda, Nepal, do loads of grassroots stuff, um, in the UK and America and elsewhere. So I've got, we've got people all over the world as well who are kind of like affiliates to, uh, PhotoAid Global. So if there's someone listening, there's a, um, you know, budding photographer who wants to get involved or is a professional photographer, there's, there's lots of opportunities. And, um, yeah, yeah, I'd love to, uh,
0: Loved, loved <laughs> wow, that's that's fascinating. So I I know from your bio that I touched only on some of the things that you're working on. So who knows, someday <laughs> we should pick up on all all the other activities that you're doing. Um, thanks so much for joining us. This has been um, a fascinating talk. I learned a lot, and that's always a, a good de- definition of of uh, fascinating talks that you say <laughs> after it. Wow, I picked up a lot from this meeting. Um, thanks. stay on the zoom uh, because we can see each other uh, the other people cannot uh, so i can say hi to you after this uh, before i end uh, for those listening thanks so much for listening and um, the people that are listening live now and those that will listen later once uh, this is a podcast for your agendas on uh, this thursday like every thursday at three o'clock eastern time uh, there will be the podcast with Alistair Doyle, our weekly wrap up of the news. Um, that is 3 Eastern time. That means that uh, that is nine o'clock in most of Europe. It's eight o'clock in the evening in the UK. And uh, that is noon in California, just to mention some of the listeners. Um, but I can't go all the way around the world. I hope that people listen from all over. Then on Friday uh, at one hour earlier of all the times that I mentioned, so that's two o'clock Eastern Time. I will have uh, Steve Ramage. Uh, that will also be a fascinating talk. He uh, works for um, the the uh, for Geo. So wh- what you have to think about is uh, taking satellite, uh, using satellite imagery and other data that you collect by satellites for all kinds of um, environmental. Um, uh, measuring and environmental, uh, policy making. So, uh, that is, um, uh, that is, that is, uh, two more for this week. And I might, uh, also like I did, uh, uh, a few days ago, I think on Sunday night, uh, when I have read a few articles, just, uh, uh, grab the microphone and do a live broadcast, which is kind of unannounced. Um, it was a bit of an experiment. Uh, next time I might uh, prepare it a little bit more than just com- completely spontaneously uh, start talking. Uh, but I heard from f- a few people that they thought that was a fun thing to do, so I might once a week or so do that as well at uh, unexpected moments. Uh, the weekend is probably more a likely moment for me to do so. So uh, with that, I hope to uh, see and hear uh, all of you uh, back here on um, on Thursday. Uh this time we ran out of time for questions, but if you have um, uh, on Thursday, if you have questions, just join in uh, when uh, I do the weekly talk with Alistair, which is always fun and I hope to uh, see you there. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.